Well, good evening, everybody. I'm, I'm used to saying good morning. I got that out of the way right, at least. So, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, if you wanted to turn to Psalm 128, um, that will be our main text for today. So, while this is a topical series, I hope to keep it expositional and really look at what the Word of God has to say about this and not just uh, the opinions of men and the thoughts of men about this. Um, Psalm 128, if you'd like to stand for the reading of God's Word, I'll give you another second. Blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, a song of ascents. How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, how blessed will you be and how well will it be for you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. May Yahweh bless you from Zion, that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. You may be seated. I'd like to talk really quickly about a word that we're all very familiar with. It's a word that's very common in the English language. It came into usage right around the year 1400, and that word is priority. Now, the interesting thing about that word is that we don't usually use it in this way. There's another usage of this word that is much more common, but actually was not common until the 1950s and wasn't even, didn't even appear in print until the year 1900 or so, and that is priorities, the plural. Now, priority means something that is more important than other things and that needs to be done or dealt with first. When we use the word in the plural, priorities, what we're saying is that there are many first things, but there can only be one first thing. Only one thing can come before everything else. And if you have priorities, this is the breeding ground of uncertainty, conflict, and chaos. Now, fortunately, the Lord has plainly revealed our priority. In Matthew 6, verse 33, we see a priority of will, and that is, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we see the first thing, seeking his kingdom and righteousness, and then we see the other things. This is our first order of business. Our first activity is to seek the Lord in his righteousness. Are you a believer today? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ Seek his kingdom. Are you an unbeliever? You need his righteousness. If you do not have the righteousness of Christ, this is what you need to seek above anything and everything else. We are also told our first love, and this is in tandem with the priority of will, the priority of our affection. They're part and parcel of the same thing. In Matthew 22, we read, And he said that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Now notice, this is required of all people. This is the law. The law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is not the gospel. This is condemnation for unbelievers. But it is a gracious gift to the believer. It is the righteous living out of the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Spirit. The gospel is that you need saved from your unrighteousness. You are unable to love the Lord your God. You are unable to seek his kingdom. You are unable to live according to his righteousness unless you are given these things by Jesus Christ. But those who are in Jesus Christ are given the gift of these things to live out for the glory of his name, which brings us to this idea of worship, which is acknowledging that God is worthy. The English word worship is a contraction of worth-ship. And it is loving him with all of our being, as we've been told. Loving your neighbor is the second thing. And it comes out of the first thing. The priority is worshiping God. The second thing is loving your neighbor. Now, who is my neighbor? We are told very clearly in the parable of the Good and Samaritan that the neighbor is the one that you can serve. The neighbor is the one that you are able to serve, the one that you are in proximity to to be able to do what they need done. Who is more in proximity to you than your own family? Who is a closer neighbor than your husband, your wife, your children? So if we see that worship is the priority in the life of a believer as an individual, we see that worship is also the priority of the believer's family life. If the greatest thing is worship, and the second thing, which is loving your neighbor, comes out of the first thing, then it should be under the first thing. Worship with your families. Now, this is a pattern that is plainly seen in Scripture, but it is difficult to pin down in terms of actual, um, like a command or a directive. There is no, thou shalt worship with your family. Right? But we see this pattern implicit in the New and the Old Testament. And this week, we're going to look at the foundations of family worship, and next week, we'll look at the practice of family worship. So don't be discouraged. If we are talking about things today that, that sound great, but you're just saying, I'm not there, we'll get there. We're going to look at why this is important first, and then we're going to look at the how and the what next week. But... Do not forget that what God requires, God also empowers. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We've already been looking at the first reason for family worship, which is God is worthy. And God is worthy for many reasons, the first and foremost being the glory of God in his attributes. He is eternal, infinite, immutable, self-existent. He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, 
holy, righteous, and just. But he is also merciful, loving, and gracious, and good to his children. He is glorious. He is singular and triune. And this is the foundation of community, of communion, of communication. We see the glory of God in his works. And these works come out of the foundation of his character, who he is. They come out of his attributes. We see the glory of God in the creation of the universe and sustaining it, upholding it with the power of his hand, that he rules over the universe and the providence of his will with power and wisdom. We see the revelation of Scripture. God is a communicating God. He has given us his word so that we can know who he is, what he has done, and the salvation that we can have in him. We glorify God because of his destruction of evil, his judgment of wickedness, that this world will be purified and someday it will be completely made new. But in the midst of that, so that we don't have to be destroyed with the impurity and evil of this world, we have the salvation of those whom God calls. And this leads us to the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The fullness of God come and dwelling among us as a man, living a perfect life that we could not live, pleasing to God in every way, walking with the Spirit. We see Jesus Christ on the cross. We see the propitiation that only he could make for us, taking the wrath of God on himself so that we could have eternal life with God. And we see him ascending into heaven and preparing a place for us. And we glorify God about the glory to come, the things that will be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. And if this weren't enough reason to worship God, we have a second reason, which is God commands it. We see this many places in the Old and New Testament, and we'll look at this more next week. But for now, one key text, which is Psalm 78, 1 through 8. We're going to look at this for a little bit, so go ahead and turn there if you have uh, a Bible in front of you. <clears throat> and this is a text that commands the teaching of God's word from one generation to another. The, the title of this text is revealing. It says that the generation to come might know a masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will pour forth dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have recounted to us. We will not conceal them from their children, but recount to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wondrous deeds that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob, and set a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and recount them to their children, that they should set their confidence in God and not forget the deeds of God, but observe his commandments, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. 
Now, this psalm deserves a fuller explanation, a deeper exposition. We're going to look at a few main points. So come back sometime in the summer of 2025 and you'll get the rest. But um, (laughs) we see, first of all, that this is an instruction to fathers for their children. It says, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have recounted to us, we will not conceal it from their children. And it is focused on God, who he is, and what he has done. It says, but recount to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wondrous deeds that he has done. We see here also the command. It says, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. And we see here that it is generational, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and recount them to their children. We see that it bears fruit. It says that they should set their confidence in God and not forget the deeds of God, but observe his commandments. And it comes with a warning. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, when we look at the, the fruit and the warning in light of the generational nature of this, it can raise doubts in our mind because you can say, I, I didn't grow up in this family. I didn't grow up doing family worship. I didn't grow up, maybe my parents weren't even believers. But a family where the parents fear the Lord and are seeking the Lord, repenting of their sin, is a completely different family than a family that is ruled by sin. And if you are a believer here, you can start this pattern even if you were not a part of it before this. And the rest of this psalm recounts God's faithfulness to Israel and Israel's response. And so I would say, tell your children about God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness in salvation, God's faithfulness to the church, God's faithfulness in your own life. Share God's faithfulness with your spouse. Live these things together. Say them to each other. And the third reason is that it is a blessing for you and your family. And in light of all these things that we've looked at so far, let's go back to Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands, how blessed will you be and how well will it be for you? Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, for for thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. May Yahweh bless you from Zion, that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, the first thing that I would like to observe from this psalm is that this is the description of a family that is in order. And there is a correct order 
for family that God has ordained. And that order is this, in terms of both authority and submission and in terms of responsibility and blessing, God is the head over all of these things. And then the husband, and then the wife, and then the children. Notice, this is not God, man, woman, child, or God, father, mother, child. This is God, husband, wife, child. This is instruction for a specific family unit. And the family unit is primarily husband and wife. Children come into a family. They don't make a family. A man and a woman are not a family. A husband and a wife are a family. This is the proper family order. And it is very important that we understand this. And we're going to look at this more in depth next week because this is the context for everything else. Now, as I said, this is not just headship and submission. This is responsibility and blessing. Leadership and headship in the Lord's economy is never a matter of ruling over other people, of using them to get what you want and to please yourself. A man is not to rule over his wife for his own pleasure. A wife is not to manipulate her husband to get what she wants. And children are not something that you bring into the world in order to gratify your own ego in some way. The Lord requires that you act out your headship and your submission first and foremost in relationship to him. The second observation is that there is a clear pattern of reaping and sowing. When you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, how blessed will it be and how well will it be for you? Now, this is speaking of a pattern coming from farming primarily. A farmer would sow a kernel in the ground, and then they would eat of the bread that that kernel produced. If you sow in laziness, if you throw a handful of seed and then go take a nap, you're going to get a poor harvest. If you sow discord and contention, if you sow a handful of wheat that's mixed with weeds, you're going to get a harvest of thorns. If you sow in laziness in your family, you're going to get a weak harvest. And if you sow in contention, you will reap strife in your family. But if you sow in godliness and love, you will reap a harvest of blessing. One kernel of wheat, we are told, can yield 30, 60, or 100 fold in good soil. But we also see that there is a pattern here. It is not immediate. A farmer waits three months or more for the crop. You don't expect to put a seed in the ground and eat bread that night. There is time involved, and the Lord is the one who brings the rain. The third observation is the fruit of a house that is in order. And a house in order is a house filled with life. It says, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. The wife and the husband are in harmony. Now, this is obviously a wife and husband who are fearing the Lord together. The wife is following the leadership of the husband and fearing the Lord. If this is not your house, 
Do not give up. Keep seeking the Lord, fearing the Lord. But we see a wife and a husband in harmony. The husband labors in the fear of the Lord, and the wife is fruitful. And this is in the innermost parts of the house. This is not just a good show on Sunday morning. This is the harmony of a marriage where they are in partnership, fearing the Lord. And you see that the children growing up in this home grow vigorously. They are like shoots of an olive coming out of an old stump. And they become fruitful in their own time. We see, fourthly, that a house that is in order blesses the people of God in the world. It says, May Yahweh bless you from Zion, that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. A household that is in order under the fear of the Lord blesses everyone around them and is a blessing to the church and a blessing to the world. And we see, fifthly, a house in order produces a generational blessing. If there is generational sin in your family, if there are sins that have plagued your family for generations, then this is one of the antidotes. Fear the Lord. Repent of those sins. Turn away from them. As we mentioned earlier, now is the time to start. God breaks those patterns. And that brings us to another thing. Which is the idea of the sanctifying partner and the sanctifying parent. If you are the lone believer in your household, you can have a sanctifying effect on your family. But we have to be very careful what we mean by that. When I say a sanctifying effect, I mean keeping them from doing greater evil in this world. A sanctifying partner is not a justifying partner. And a sanctifying parent is not a justifying parent. Justification belongs to God alone. So what is a house in order? A house in order is, first and foremost, a household that fears the Lord. And this idea of the fear of the Lord is synonymous with true worship. The Lord told Elijah, I have saved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now these were 7,000 men who engaged in true worship and fear of the Lord. All of Israel bowed the knee to Yahweh, but they also bowed the knee to Baal. There was no true fear of the Lord. There was no true worship. They honored him with their lips and their hearts were far away from him. But these 7,000 men truly feared the Lord. They held him in reverence, in awe, in honor. They understood his glory and his holiness and they kept themselves separate from the things that would take them away from him. This is a household in order. As I said before, you might be saying to yourself, my house doesn't look like this. And we'll come back to how to do this next week and what it is that we should do. But know this, if your household is not in order, the things we're going to talk about will be difficult and they will be painful, but they are also part and parcel of bringing your household into order. They're the cure for the problem as well as the pain in the problem many times. But the first thing, the first thing in fearing the Lord is do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus was the Son of God come to die in your place? 
Do you believe that he is the one who has taken the wrath of God and propitiation for you? Repent of your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of everything else. And without that, none of the rest of this will make any sense to you or be possible. And this can only be given to you by the grace of God. The salvation of Jesus Christ is a gift to everyone whom he calls. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we can look at your word. We thank you for the word that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for your glory and all of your divine attributes, these things that we just glanced at so briefly. We thank you for the power at work in this world through the Holy Spirit, interpreting your word, making it known to us. Lord, we pray that these things would change our hearts, would move our hearts. We pray that we would be people who worship you in truth and in spirit, and that we would lead our families in worshiping in truth and spirit. We know these things are only possible through the grace and glory of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.